Hello and welcome to the Modern House podcast with me, Matt Gibbard. My guest today is Jeff Taylor. Jeff is the founder of Courier, a print magazine and media platform that tells the stories of startup culture and modern business. It's full of really great life stories about entrepreneurs solving problems and having eureka moments in their bedrooms. And it's certainly given me lots of ideas over the years. As always, I've asked Jeff to pick his three favourite living spaces anywhere in the world. We'll be talking about some houses in his native Australia and also his own home in Buckinghamshire, which is an incredible prefabricated hoof house that he bought through our agency a while ago. Hope you enjoy it. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on. Welcome to the podcast. Um, you founded Career in 2013, I think. Yeah, it's a while ago. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back in the mists of time. Yeah. Um, for those people that might not have come across it, how do you describe what you do? Um, yeah, we have sort of a very simple, I guess, mission at Courier, which is to be a beacon for people who want to work and live on their own terms. And everything we do is around um, helping people kind of realise that dream. Okay. And you started out, I think, as a free magazine, didn't you? What was in that and where did you distribute it? The idea was always to build a media brand, but we thought free was a great way to build an audience quite quickly early on when we didn't have a lot of capital. So our first issue, we just printed like a thousand copies and distributed them around sort of central shortage and they just went really quickly. So the next one we did 2000 and from there we just kept going and now it's sold in I think 26 countries around the world and um, is a product we're really proud of. So the, as well as the magazine, it's obviously a sort of broader media platform as well. What, what does it fully encompass, would you say? Yeah, we, we have our podcast series. We're just about to launch our first mag book. Uh, we have a hardcover book in production at the moment with uh, Gestalten. We publish a lot of stories online. And of course, we have the print magazine as well. And it's all based around the business sector, isn't it? So I suppose a bit like the world that we operate in uh, of a state agency, you could say that business media is traditionally a pretty conventional and unglamorous sector. So how did you go about rethinking that? Yeah, well, my insight was that it was a time when I wanted to quit my job and do something on my own terms, to use our sort of phrase. And when I looked around, all that was out there was kind of you know, newspapers and magazines that were about stocks and shares and men in suits and doing business. Yeah. And then all those sort of appalling TV shows, uh, effectively game shows like Dragon's Den or The Apprentice. And there was nothing I clocked about people like me. And I think the big sort of leap we had was that actually Courier is not really about business. Courier is about people. And it's just about people who want to earn a living on their own terms. And that might be to make lots of money, but in most cases it actually isn't. It's to fulfill lots of other ambitions, whether that's to be a really great parent and be home every day when your kids get home from school or whether it's a desire to be a carpenter, even though you you know went off and became a banker or whatever it is. And that's why we love that phrase, on your own terms. It's, it's up to our readers and our audience to decide what it is they want to do. Our job is to um, help them realise that. Um, with uh, inspiration and, and really useful information that they can use to um, to make a really great go of it. So, of course, you're a business owner yourself. W what does it look like running it on your own terms? You know, what are the challenges that you face and how do you run your business? Um, well, yeah, that's what makes Courier so interesting is that I kind of made the magazine for myself. 
and have continued to. And our proximity to loads of other businesses like us, I think, is why we've been able to succeed because we've been through exactly the same challenges, whether that's having to learn about cash flow or figuring out how to manage staff or dealing with supply chain issues or all those hundreds of random questions that as a business owner you have to deal with at some stage. But it's not like a subject at university that you can study for. It's almost like standing on the baseline of the tennis court. You just have to be ready for whatever shot's going to come at you and react. Yeah. I think that's our empathy with the audience is we've we've done exactly the same things. Um, One thing to point out is actually I'm not a business owner anymore. We were acquired by the MailChimp group in the US. So Career is now part of MailChimp, something we're, we're very proud of. After that acquisition, what, what's changed for you? Are you still very hands-on then or you know, is, is it really quite a different existence for you personally? No, it's, um, it's very similar in that um, I wasn't looking to sell our business and uh, it was only that MailChimp were a fantastic partner and had been for an, a number of years and uh, it sort of uh, just evolved into an acquisition. But uh, I still run Courier. It's just been a, a great partnership. Okay. So for a youngster out there thinking of starting their own business in their bedroom somewhere, what little nuggets could you give them? What kind of things should they be thinking about, would you say? This territory is just filled with, here's five tips for making your first million by Richard Branson or whatever. And of course, it's so much more complex and nuanced than that. Luck plays a big part. Uh, One of the things I always tell um, founders is do your own accounts. Whether you are mathematically gifted or not, it's not very hard to do simple bookkeeping. And you understand the machinery of your business. Uh, You understand where your cash flow is at. And cash flow kills more businesses than any other cause uh, at this size. Uh, And by doing your own accounts, you really get an intuitive sense for how your business operates, how you make money, where you spend it. Mm. Another thing I recommend to them is just that they surround themselves with a really great network of peers. The old business cliche is very dog-eat-dog. And a lot of people start a business thinking that they need some great veil of secrecy over what they're doing and that they need to be in a pin-coded lab Um, when actually the most successful businesses that I see are consistently ones that share and collaborate with other businesses, especially in the early days. It's incredibly lonely being a founder. The mental health of founders is a a massive issue. Your friends, your partner, um, all the people around you don't necessarily understand what you're going through. The only other people who can understand it are others who are in the same situation. And I think building a really great peer network not just for mental and emotional support, but also just to help you answer those questions I talked about earlier. Oh, I need a supplier who can manufacture four centimetre round plastic buttons. I don't know where to start <laughs> with that. Oh, you know, that person I met the other week at that meetup or, you know, that I've been talking to online or whatever, they might be able to help me. And, and building out that network can, can stand you in really great stead. Yeah, I completely agree with that. The other thing that we've found, I don't know what your experience with this is, but just having a mentor or someone else is more experienced than you on the board or just, you know, coming in once a month just to chat things through has been completely invaluable for us, I must say. It is, isn't it? Because it's easy to be the dictator of your own tiny little kingdom. No one really questions you. Uh, And to have someone who can just gently call you out, who can understand where you're at, but can also see something from a different angle is, um, is just invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. We've all made mistakes along the way as well. Looking back on Courier so far, is there anything else that you would have done very differently? Are there any mistakes that you've learned a lot from particularly, would you say? 
my goodness, look, probably like you, you can look back and you can see loads of mistakes. And maybe it's the benefit of hindsight because we've survived. But I tend to think that it's actually in a lot of those errors that the great stuff is born because you have to go on a process. There's no map for this stuff. There's just, I think, doing things, seeing what happens and then being sort of nimble enough to, to correct and being honest and reflective enough with yourself to be able to look at things that go wrong and, and genuinely try to interrogate why that happened. And I do think being a, a founder is a is a really tough thing. There's a, a lot of easier ways, I think, to make a living than founding your own business. But I do think it is, outside of any of the financial elements, I think it's a, an incredible source of personal growth outside of anything else. Yeah, yeah. Our own experience of it is that once we learn to plug in the right people, the right personalities, that really allowed our business to take off. What's your advice generally around recruitment? Well, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because in the very early days of a business, it's all about you. You're the centre of it. And I think it's easy for the ego to take over. But you're absolutely right. I think you you guys have recruited phenomenally well at the Modern House. Um, Everyone seems on code and on brand and right. We've done a good job at Courier as well. And when I look around, I think it's that ability as a founder to actually step away from all that and be prepared to hand things over and step into the background a little because you can't build a team, a really great effective team if it's all just about you as the founder. Yeah. Look, hiring is hard and a really good mentor of mine actually said to me, you know, in every five hires, if I get one that I would say I would keep this person when I move on and start something else, I'll be very satisfied with my performance. So uh, what I think the secret is, I think, you know, getting good at interviewing and getting a good sense, but ultimately taking a punt on people, treating people, you know, uh, very well in that process. And if it doesn't work out, actually being prepared for their sake and your sake to um, to move on. On the flip side, I think you have to very, very generously reward those who do work out to build a really tight team. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant stuff, Jeff. Let's move on to your choice of three favourite homes. Um, your first choice is your own family home in Melbourne, isn't it? Tell us about that one. Did you grow up there? Yeah, I did. And I'm cheating a bit on this one because I'm I'm merging two homes into one in a way, Um, but they kind of make the same point. I was lucky enough to grow up in the mid-70s at a time when, as is a lot of, I think, cities around the world, there was a movement away from inner city suburbs and into more open, bigger properties in, in the suburbs. And my parents were a part of that. They moved from a, a very nice um, inner city suburb out to a beautiful semi-rural location. And um, and my parents designed with an architect a pretty classic house of that era, um, a bit brutalist from the outside, but um, very much based on uh, timber and glass, big soaring cathedral ceilings, floor-to-ceiling glass that looked out across hills and it sort of cascaded down a hill that it was built on across split levels that's probably one of my earliest memories is growing up surrounded by um, windows that brought the outside in so that the house felt like it was a part of nature and you could experience the seasons and see things changing around you. Um, and living in a house that was filled with colour. My mum was just crazy about, you know, painting doors um, with a bright yellow door on the bathroom and bright red on the toilet and big marameco curtains with, you know, huge prints through the living areas and things. And as little kids, mm-hmm. I think that just really sort of um, 
informed my sensibility about big colours and patterns and light. The house uses some beautiful timbers. There's pine and there's Oregon. And, uh, and it's just a very formative uh, sort of impression it left on me, I think. Did you have any shag pile carpet? We didn't. We didn't have too many of those. We didn't have an avocado um, bathroom suite either. Um, I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say this to my mom, but she actually had pretty good taste generally. Like okay. uh, a number of the things haven't been changed in the house and they still look pretty timeless actually. So is it still the family seat then? Do you still go back there? It is, yeah. Yeah, it, it still is. Um, it's now um, way too big for my mum who lives there by herself, but I think uh, there's so many memories and it's such a beautiful home, albeit you know, it's now a sort of 35-, 40-year-old house. The homes of that era were beautiful, but timber in the Australian environment is a, is a very high-maintenance <laughs> Uh, item yeah. a lot of my memories are of you know poor dad trying to um you know maintain the place and um you know people coming in to to do various things to keep it in good shape but yeah it's still there and you know it doesn't leak and you open all the curtains up and you look out across the hills and it's still a, a really really beautiful place you can stand in our dining room and um you get 180 degree views of the hills it's like standing on the on the bow of a ship or something we always talk about a well-designed home being able to make you feel better make you happier you know uplift you a bit did did you feel that when you were a child do you think looking back on it how, how did it make you feel the house totally I think when you have access to light it makes such a difference in a, a living environment we had huge skylights um uh, at the top of these cathedral ceilings and access to green I think these are sort of basic living essentials and it doesn't take a lot of money to do that you know, we see in sort of the Scandinavian countries in Japan etc that even relatively small homes just prioritize light access to nature etc but I think they have a, a huge impact on your well-being they're as important as warmth and you know other sort of basic amenities in a home the reason I'm being a bit cheeky with this house is I'm merging my aunt's house into this. So at the same time that my parents were building a beautiful timber and, and glass house, um, so were my aunt and uncle who designed their place. My uncle was an architect. And again, it cascades down across the side of a hill. It's three levels and huge floor-to-ceiling glass looking out across a park. And so it was a similar experience when we'd go around to visit them of, again, just being encapsulated in these beautiful glass homes. And I, I think it had a huge impact on sort of my mental well-being and, and happiness as a child yeah well i'm sure it's informed the way that you live now which we'll come on to later sure um what's your experience of melbourne as a city are you fond of it still yeah i mean melbourne's a funny city it, it you know it always sits up there at the top of those um most livable city uh lists with places like vienna and stockholm it's a huge sprawling city sort of la style you know, live in a suburb off a freeway and get on the freeway or the highway to to go to other suburbs but I think what Melbourne gets right is there's a really good balance of outdoor life and indoor culture. It's got you know, incredible coffee, um, fantastic restaurants, you know, the, all the different um, immigrant populations that, that made up sort of Melbourne's history have kind of created the most incredible food and dining scene. Great arts, and yet you can be surfing in an hour and a half or skiing in a few hours or down by the beach after work. So I think it gets a lot of things right. Sounds pretty good. So what, what are you doing in the UK in that case? How did you end up here? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I think um, one thing that Melbourne doesn't have is um, proximity. You know, Australia is a long way away. And I think many Australians who make the move either to the UK or to the West Coast of the US do it 
just because there's a longing to be maybe a bit closer to the action. Uh, I didn't plan to. I, I came over to London just on a holiday and, you know, got a job and sort of just ended up here by default. And, and uh, the UK is sort of definitely my my second country. I've spent almost half my life here. My parents had lived in Singapore and Hong Kong before they had me. And dad always sort of warned me, once you've spent over two years in another country, wherever you are, you'll always miss the other one. Yeah. Uh, and it's a small price to pay for being able to call multiple cities home. But it's true. Whenever I'm in Melbourne, I miss London and, and the UK and, and vice versa. So talking of holidays, your second choice is a holiday house in the far north of Queensland. Tell us about this one. You know, this one's a remarkable one when I sat down thinking about your assignment of, of three homes because I only spent two weeks in this property. I think when I was about 12, um, we actually went on a road trip all the way from um, Melbourne, which is in the um, sort of southeastern corner of Australia, up to um, far north Queensland. And it was super exciting as kids to be visiting all these different sort of beachside towns and cities all the way along Australia's east coast. And almost the furthest we went was this tiny little place called Ball Bay. And I don't know what it's like now, but Dad had found this you know, really lovely home. It was, um, again, sort of timber and glass, but it, it literally backed onto the beach. And so we would walk out of the, sort of the back door and there'd be sand under our feet and coconut trees. And then you'd keep walking and you'd be on the beach and, um, and in the ocean. And it was completely isolated. There were um, no other houses near it. It was kind of like being marooned on a desert island. In fact, I had to check this with my mum to make sure I hadn't dreamt it, but <laughs> the only time we saw anybody else when we were staying there was um, we went on a big, long walk as a family and I suddenly yelled out, Mum, <laughs> there's two naked people over there. <laughs> and it was a couple who, who obviously thought they were completely isolated and uh, were romping around in the sand <laughs> naked. <laughs> and we, were, we quickly turned around and sent back home. But, wow. uh, but it was that isolated. I, I don't think we saw anybody else the entire time we were there. So I remember we went out in a glass-bottom boat, we snorkeled, we explored all the different islands. It, we'd drive somewhere and buy a pineapple or a custard apple or whatever and cut it open and eat it for breakfast and... It was almost a bit of a bohemian kind of existence uh, for that month or so whilst we were up there. Uh, It's very special. So you're describing very much a a sort of desert island getaway, but did the house itself contribute to that feeling or was it just about the landscape that you were in? No, absolutely. I mean, the house had been beautifully designed for that environment. Again, big soaring windows and a lovely big open uh, living area and kitchen. And so even when you're inside you could experience the outside. And that is a theme of, um, when I think about it, the three properties I've chosen, although not deliberately, this interplay between um, external and internal. Yeah. I mean, I, I was quite struck by that because I think, you know, we, we find that we sell probably a disproportionately high number of houses to Australians. Really? <laughs> yeah, and I suspect it's because Australians have grown up with the modern design, I think, in that indoor-outdoor living, perhaps in a way that, that we never quite manage over here because of the weather. Um, But do do you think that's the case? Certainly we do talk about outdoor kitchens now and outdoor living rooms and the space outside our homes because of the weather. Although that said, you know, Melbourne is not the warmest of cities either. Our our winter is, Mm. you know, fairly long and fairly grey and very wet as well. I think there is just a culture in Australia a little more like maybe Scandinavia as well of spending a lot of time in the outdoors. Even when it's wet, we will walk on beaches or hike through forests and and the bush. I think that contributes a lot to it as well. 
There are some amazing Australian modern architects, of course, as well. Have you particularly studied any of those? Have you visited any of those great iconic houses over there? I've not actually spent that much time, you know, in Australia. I mean, I go home for Christmas, but that's the usual um, cycle of, you know, seeing relatives and catching up with friends and things like that. I'd love to go on a bit of a trek through Australia, as I would through um, some parts of of the US, just looking at classical examples of great 60s and 70s architecture. I'm a huge fan of Alexander Girard. You know, some of the properties that he worked on uh, just remarkable. A lot of them have been destroyed now, but um, but that whole era, I just think there was a great focus on um, creating a, a quality of life from your home yeah. that didn't necessarily involve extravagance or um, intense luxury. It was just about um, rebalancing the the way people lived. Yeah, I must admit, I'm a personally huge fan of Glenn Murcutt and that whole right vernacular agricultural thing. I just think it's so beautiful. Yeah. I tend not to fetishize a lot of these things, whether it's wine or food or architecture. You know, I, I kind of think there's just basics that are important and then I'm probably not interested enough in them to sort of study them intensely. But I think there is so much to be learned from exactly that movement. Actually, there's, there's a line from that very much to, you know, what we try to do in my business, which is help people, you know, balance a, and design a life that is um, sort of conducive to happiness. Yeah. Well, exactly. So does that mean that you go on holiday quite a lot then? I mean, as, as someone who's all about business, are you able to switch off? Yeah, I, I love to travel. And whenever I'm feeling kind of stuffy, I will just sort of throw my laptop in a bag and we'll head off somewhere for a few days even yeah. um, just for a change of scenery. And it's, I think it's how I creatively recharge as well. Yeah. Whenever I would sort of just be creatively spent, I'd just head for Tokyo or Seoul and just, you know, expose myself to just completely different influences to what to what you get here yeah travel's um a huge part of my life not at the moment however but hopefully very soon again yeah exactly okay moving on to your third and final choice it's your current home in buckinghamshire uh which was designed and built by the german company hoff in the uk i think many of us were first turned on to hoof houses by an episode of grand designs many years ago but just explain it to us. What is a hoof house? The best way I can describe at least the experience of a hoof is it's more like buying a car from a dealership than buying a house. So hoof is a company based in Germany and they make these prefabricated homes, but they're not like the, I guess, stereotypical prefab that people think of. They're these beautiful, huge um, timber and glass constructions that they, they make in a factory and then they assemble on site in a matter of days. And uh, I didn't build this hoof. Uh, it was built by a couple um, that I bought it from. It's, um, I believe, either the biggest or one of the biggest hoof houses in the country. And it's a great example of what hoof do really well. It is um, like a glass jewel case sitting in um, three acres of beautiful gardens. And everything that I talked about as those influences as a child are kind of here in this building. I wake up in the morning and my view is um, through three different sides. And that's true of almost every room in the house. Wherever you look, the outside just flows um, directly inside. That, that leads us on to, to natural light. It's obviously incredibly important because, you know, it regulates our circadian rhythm, it triggers serotonin, and fundamentally... It makes us feel good, doesn't it, as you described. How do you feel when you're in that house? That is 
probably one of the lightest houses in the country, I would have thought, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're not a good sleeper, it's probably, um, it's probably not great. But, um, yeah, it is. It's incredibly light in here. And we've actually, um, we're just getting some lighting installed in the gardens as well so that of a night we can enjoy all the grounds um, around the place. Um, but, yeah, the light is, um, is incredible in here. And I think to that point of um, circadian rhythms, to that notion of the Japanese forest bath, and all of those things to to just be surrounded by nature. It's funny. I've lived in central London for the last um, fifteen years, and to suddenly be surrounded by nature, it's not just an aesthetic thing, as you say. It's a sort of temperament, or um, uh, almost probably a hormonal thing. I, uh, autumn, which I just thought was a monolithic season, I've watched sort of evolve literally day by day, the trees and the colours, and it hopefully has very good impacts on my blood pressure. <laughs> I'm sure it does, without a doubt. Are you getting hands-on in the garden yourself as well? Are you growing any marrows or rearing alpacas or any other niche animals? <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't. There's, um, there's two um, terrific gardeners who come and, and look after the garden uh, and keep it in good shape. The previous owners um, had brought in a, an incredible garden designer and have created something that is just so visually stunning out there. I, I'm a bit intimidated to, um, to get out there and try anything. <laughs> I, did, um, I did sort of gingerly ask a few weeks ago, you know, what are the odds of being able to plant a few like fruit trees or something? And I was quickly told that that probably wasn't an option in their garden. <laughs> so I've, 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 um, I've backed off for now and left it, left it to them. But I think it had been um, nestled on the edge of a forest, this property originally, before the original house was pulled down and the, and the hoof was built. And so have some incredible trees that must be 10, 12 stories high, beautiful maples and oaks and um, the remnants of a pine forest at the top of our um, property that um, that's just amazing to go for a wander through. Yeah, it looks like an incredible landscape and it's worth saying as well, we'll, we'll put some pictures up on the website so people can see, but obviously it's a house that uh, we sold to you. I'm quite intrigued. What was your process in terms of the way you ended up buying the house? Were you specifically looking to move to Buckinghamshire or...? Do you know what? It's it's kind of a crazy story and it irritates anybody who has bought a house recently because I think I had the easiest process of, of anyone at uh, any time in buying a house. I hadn't really intended to move out of London and then was living in a, um, a really beautiful apartment in Shoreditch. And during the first lockdown, I just, I didn't enjoy lockdown, but I loved the fact that the streets were clear and the air was clean and it was just a whole lot quieter. And it kind of made me think, you know what, rather than move to the US West Coast, which is what I had been sort of toying with, I thought maybe I'll just start start sniffing around the UK and, and see what's around. And um, I'd wanted a hoof house for a long time. I'd spoken to a lot of friends about them and um, you know, had occasionally checked them out online. And no word of a lie, probably two days after I um, sort of thought I'd start looking around in the UK, my business partner sent me an ad for this house. He'd seen it on your, your site. And uh, he sent it to me on the Sunday. I came and viewed it on the Tuesday. I think I took another viewing on the Thursday, put an offer in, and I'd bought it by the following week, uh, give or take the you know completion and exchange process. So I was very lucky. I didn't have a chain and the, uh, the vendor didn't have a chain. And um, I was able to get the house in, I don't know, it must have been like, six weeks seven weeks i think we um we got it all done in if only everyone was that decisive jeff <laughs> uh, um. <laughs> well you know what? I, I i must admit i just i saw it and i just instantly fell in love with it i just knew i wanted to live in 
in this house, you know. It's, it's one of those love at first sight kind of things. And it's funny, people come to visit and they can't help but smile. There was an Uber driver who dropped someone off a few a few weeks ago and it was at night time and the house was all lit up. And he said, oh, it's the most beautiful house I've ever seen in my life. Will you take a photo wow. of me to show my wife? Uh, and I thought, That's oh, amazing. it's lovely that a structure can bring happiness to um, to people who see it. It brings me so much happiness and it's lovely to be able to share that with people who visit. That's amazing, isn't it? That really is. It's it's a very, very photogenic place. I think that's the thing. What you've described there is, you know, you saw some photographs on our website and I would imagine those sort of planted a seed of a certain way of living that resonated with you. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but that's my experience yeah. of buying yeah. houses, especially with the way that you've grown up in Australia, as you say, with the indoor outdoor living and all the light. I really believe in that that very emotional process of buying a house you know, did it come to you in your dreams at night? Did you wake up thinking about it? That's what always happens to me. Oh, I was so excited about it. From the minute I saw it, you know, I was then in that anxious state of like, I have to get this. I just have to get this. And, uh, you know, even though it was a quick process, you know, buying a house is never an easy process in that there are so many moving parts that you need to align. I think I was lucky that it was um, just after first lockdown before housing had really gone crazy. And so I was able to move very quickly. And I think... Back to that point you made about there not being that many homes in the UK that are built like this, even though I hadn't been on the market for a long time looking, I knew that probably if I didn't snap this one up, it wasn't like I'd have five more to look at in the coming weeks. Yeah, that This one was so perfect. I, I, I jumped at it and was lucky enough to secure it. Yeah. I think the natural concern with a, a kit house is that it wouldn't feel permanent and solid can you describe the build quality to us? Does it feel well built? <laughs> Wolf House feels like even after the apocalypse, it would probably <laughs> still be standing. <laughs> there is not one floorboard that creaks. And, you know, this is a 14-year-old house. Mm. There is not one big sliding door that isn't just perfect and silent as it glides open. And back to that initial point I made that um, it's more like buying a car from a dealership. You know, hoof come and service this house every year. There's a service record. Every part in true German style is numbered and catalogued. We damaged the light fitting moving in and I was just able to call Hoof, um, send them a photograph and it was part, you know, 22974 or whatever <laughs> and it was um, duly dispatched and was on my doorstep a few days later. So everything from the, the heating, the lighting, uh, all the way through is um, is kind of centralised. And then there's a Hoof ecosystem of um, third-party businesses and um, other Hoof owners. Uh, there's a, a Hoof owners society online where you can get in touch with other people to solve problems or asking questions. And and this one is a great example. I think it's been looked after so well. Uh, people come to visit and they, they assume that it's a new house. It's in pretty much perfect condition. That's brilliant, isn't it? Because owning a house can be quite anxiety-inducing if something goes wrong. You, you know, knowing how to repair it or who to get to repair it and what you should do. I love that idea that you're just plugged into this ready-made support network that's there for you when you need it. That, that must be really liberating, I think. It feels like one of those things of like, why doesn't it always work like this? Yeah. On the flip side, like having a car serviced at a dealership, it's more expensive mm. that way. Uh, in a lot of cases, parts have to come from Germany. We had a, um, a laundry hose burst. 
I had a terrific uh, hoof experienced plumber who came to take a look, but his immediate response was, oh, it's a special part. We'll need to get it up from Germany. So rather than just have a, a local plumber fix it, you know, it took four or five days and cost a bit more to get it right. So there, there are those downsides, but I, I think they're small prices to pay in the scheme of things. One other thing about a hoof though is the way it is is pretty much the way it is. You can't knock walls down. You can't mm. you know, reconfigure the house um, too aggressively. Everything's been designed and, and built in the factory and so most walls have structural elements to them because there aren't that many walls and um, a lot of things are kind of locked down. So for instance, getting Wi-Fi through this property is quite a challenge. <laughs> um, it's a four-storey property and uh, each floor in a hoof is made from concrete uh, to support all the uh, underfloor heating and things. And so Wi-Fi is a bit of a nightmare. We've had to um, run sort of special mesh network um, through pelmets and, and wire up through it. So doing work after the event in a hoof is, um, is not easy. But uh, again, it, it feels like a small price to pay. And who do you share the house with? Uh, so my partner lives here with me. And then um, we have a series of people coming through, you know, friends come to stay. We're lucky that we're close enough to London that, that people can just come up um, of a weekend. Yep. And we have a, a new little puppy as well, a 10-week-old um, little uh, fox red Labrador called Brody, who's very patiently camping out across the lounge room from me at the moment, but he's uh, waiting for his <laughs> I lunch. I he loves it there. <laughs> it's like Disneyland for a dog. Yeah. Uh, once he can go outside, he's going to have the time yeah. of his life. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is the space there, because to me, it would appear to be the ideal layout in many ways. The ground floor is almost completely open plan. And then upstairs, you've got the bedrooms, which are much more contained and intimate. Does that work well for you? It does. It's quite nice the way the top floor is done in that one half of the top floor is the master suite with um, a bedroom, a, a large walk-in robe, and then um, a really big master bathroom with um, beautiful views right across the property. Uh, albeit you have to be a little careful in there because it's floor-to-ceiling glass and a few times the uh, ladies who deliver um, the milk and bread and newspapers to <laughs> us um, may have spotted me in the shower first thing. Um, and then the other side of that floor is uh, two guest bedrooms with bathrooms and so yeah it's a nice sort of residential kind of floor with a beautiful library in the middle where um, you can just uh, sit back and sort of have a bit of a read and then as you say the the main floor is two large open plan living areas a beautiful dining room and a big open plan kitchen and then a room that was intended as a bedroom but that we've turned into a sort of cardio gym and then down below we have we have another two bedrooms one of which um the previous owners had used as a sort of media room cinema and um we'll probably renovate to be similar and we're lucky enough to have a lap pool down there as well very nice and you're obviously a hard-working guy, Jeff, and, and you've built your career around business. But, I mean, away from the world of work, what what does this home do for you? Is it, is it a refuge and a place to, to just decompress? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the best way I can describe it is it's kind of like living in a German wellness facility. Um, we're <laughs> s- surrounded by these gardens and then um, uh, we have beautiful meadows on one side of us and, a, and an arboretum on another side. And so... The opportunity to just get out and walk, uh, have a hit of tennis, um, swim, or you know just sit outside and, and just sort of watch the environment change is um, is pretty incredible. And um, we're, we're located in a little hamlet just near Great Missenden, 
So it's a beautiful area. We're right in the heart of the Chilterns um, and the bike riding and the nature trails and things are, are pretty spectacular around here. So, so yeah, very much a, a decompression. It's funny, I've only sort of been out of London for probably 10, 12 weeks now, but when I um, sort of nip back in, I'm very keen to get out here and there's a roundabout I, I turn off the, um, the freeway at and uh, I can just sort of feel like a, like a ha ah, as I go around that <laughs> yeah. roundabout and I know I'm, I know I'm back in the country. That's brilliant. Jeff, thanks so, so much for talking to me. Um, I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. And um, really, really interesting to hear about how you live in it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. It's been great. See you again soon. Bye-bye. See you soon, Jeff. Bye now. Thank you very much for listening today. You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. And if you've got time to leave us a quick review, that would, of course, be greatly appreciated. We've got some very exciting guests in the pipeline, so do watch this space. The producer of this episode was Caroline Hughes, and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective. <laughs>